Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Motivational Mondays podcast, where we bring you inspiring conversations with incredible individuals who are making a difference in the world. Today, we are thrilled to have Jennifer Dulski as our special guest. And Jennifer is not only the CEO and founder of Rising Team, which is a platform that empowers managers to build engaged, successful teams, but she's also a thought leader in purpose-driven leadership and movement starting. Her new book is called Purposeful. The full title here is Purposeful, Are You a Manager or a Movement Starter? And there's the cover there, the book. And uh, it's also become a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Jennifer, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Thanks so much for having me, Corey. It is my pleasure. Now, um, because of course we have a lot of career focused, career oriented young people out there, I always love to have a guest share a little bit about their journey in correlation to, you know, what their current passions are. But as far as your background story, can you just give us a little bit about your journey and how you became passionate uh, about leadership and movement starting? Absolutely. So my career started a little bit of a non-traditional way for someone who now works in tech, which is that I started my career as a high school teacher. So I, way back in the day, I, I started a nonprofit organization to help kids become first-gen college graduates. And then I taught high school for four years while I was running that program. And I loved it. I, I caught the impact bug at a very young age and the purpose bug because I just saw how meaningful it was to to help amplify the potential in other people. And the reason I moved from nonprofit to tech is because I felt like there had to be a way to scale that at a you know more larger degree to more people. And so that led me to a career in tech. I've spent you know, many years working at the big tech companies like Google and Yahoo and Facebook. And then I also helped to run change.org for five years. And now I am building the company I believe I've been meant to build my whole life, which is Rising Team, because to me, the through line has always been organizations are most successful when the people within them feel understood and supported and feel like they can build trust together as a team. Mm, I love that. And it's so important because basically you're saying that all those lessons that you were teaching, I guess, at the high school level were universal lessons that can be used on a larger scale. And of course, in organizations where today we know it's so important for people to feel represented right in the corporate workspace. It's so true. And in fact, it, it was important back then, but it is so critical now because it used to be that when everybody worked together you know, we could resolve some of those issues in real time. And now, as we know, three quarters of people work remote or hybrid. And so building those tighter connections with the people we work with and deeper understanding of each other takes real intentionality now in a way that it didn't before. Mm -hmm. And it's funny too, again, the, the correlation between like high school, which is at the time when you're <laughs> in it, it feels like it is the world that you know. Like when you're in that place and you're like in the 11th grade or 10th or 12th grade, 
that's like literally to you a macrocosm. You don't really realize that it's a small part that's preparing you for the real place. So I think what's important about that is that you were teaching that sort of empathy really at that young age, before young people went out into the world to join an organization. It's so true. And, you know, what's interesting also is you see the people, you know, the the kids that I taught in high school are now adults, right? The time mm-hmm. passes and you see also how people's lives can be impacted when they have people who believe in them and support them to reach those goals. And it's incredible to see you know, the students that I had at that age, some of them are surgeons and some of them went to the military. There's just such amazing things that people can accomplish. And I actually, so I, I went from tech and we went from teaching into tech. And now I also teach again because I teach at the business school at Stanford. And so in a way it's come full circle. I find that there's a lot of value that comes in life from doing the scaled things that technology lets us do and that AI will let us do now. And there's also so much value though from working one-on-one with people and understanding their individual stories and helping be a part of their journey and they complement each other. Again, so important because what we hear a lot nowadays is this dialogue of like soft skills versus the tech stuff or the AI, you know, uh, the technology driven skill set. And here at the NSLS, we're sort of like re even like reimagining that term soft skills, because those aren't soft skills. The ability to communicate, be empathetic, to understand others, to think and reason. I think that's a really great point because you can't get that like, well, at least thus far, AI can't really emulate, <laughs> can't do those things. So someone has to continue to teach people. Yeah, it's so true. And actually, I've been doing a lot of work recently on AI and leadership and really trying to dig into how AI can help us become better leaders and where it still can't. And Mm. there are surprisingly a lot of places where even I was caught off guard with how effective it can be. So things like coming up with an inspiring vision, which is a big part of being a successful movement starter, as I write about in the book, AI is actually pretty darn good at coming up with inspiring visions for things, especially just thinking about the way that you word them and naming things and so forth. There are some things, though, that you point out AI just cannot do yet. And this is why I still believe what we're building at Rising Team is so important, because what it can't do is help us build deep human connection with other people. And it also cannot help us have the inner resilience and strength to keep going when things get hard, which is Mm -hmm. one of the key factors of leadership, right? No successful leader is successful if they can't get up after they're knocked down. And AI is just not really the thing that's going to help you with that. So our humanity, we still need it. I love that. And also in your book, and so just, that's a great segue. So thank you. Uh, one of the, my favorite spots in your book is when you talk about, uh, where was it? It was, um, I think it was Get to Know Your Goliath. And oh, yeah. Get to Know Your Goliath was amazing because it was, to me, it sort of like tells you not to be afraid of that thing that is that giant undertaking, but to get to understand it and to know it and to learn it. And that is the way you conquer it. So that That's was my right. interpretation. Okay, making sure I was on the right page. Well, that. I think there's there's two pieces to it, right? The the first piece is that every single huge movement on earth, everything we can imagine, you know, civil rights, marriage equality, all of the movements we see, they all start with 
a single person or a handful, a small group of people and small actions. And every person I interviewed for the book could point out the small first action they took. It was sometimes writing an email to friends asking for help. Sometimes it was starting a petition or starting, you know, having an event. But that idea of sometimes we're afraid to do really big things because they seem really big when you don't just roll out of bed and suddenly have the big thing. You have to start right. small. And so I call it little C courage. And I compare it sometimes to, to being like the feeling of, standing up for a standing ovation in a show that was just pretty good. You know, like <laughs> you, you stand up and you're not sure anyone else is going to stand with you. Right. But if you stand there long enough clapping pretty soon, somebody else will stand up and then another person stands up. And that's what it's like to get started on these things is being brave enough to take the first small step, even if it makes you feel exposed a little bit and knowing that other people will join you over time. Yeah. There, there are a lot of common denominators I find when I interview people such as yourself, successful leaders, but especially people who've led big corporations and in their backstory, there's a lot of similarities. And that is one that comes up a lot. The idea that you cannot be paralyzed by the unknown if you're going to be successful. Like you have to face that fact that, okay, I don't know how to do this, but I'm not going to say no. I'm going to get in there and figure it out. Or I'm going to get in there and get the people on my team that can help me figure it out. And you also talk about that in your book too, the idea that you cannot do that, the, the big things in life without forming relationships and connections. So talk a little bit about that. It's so true. So actually, when I now when I describe the book in summary, I say that there are three C's. It's courage, community, and commitment. And we talked about courage, and we talked a little bit about commitment. The second C is community, which is you can't, you just cannot do this by yourself. It is not a movement by definition until other people are joining you in it. What I will say is the the first step. So your point about not having done it before and that being scary sometimes. I have a saying I use with myself, a little mantra that I think is helpful, which is the first time people do anything, they've never done it before. And so I try yeah. to remind myself, it's just by definition true. The first time I like walked, I hadn't done it. it, literally anything. And so, you know, I, for instance, learned how to ride a bicycle when I was in my 20s because I grew up in San Francisco where it's very hilly and I just <laughs> never rode a bike. Right, and as it right. turns out, it is really embarrassing to learn to ride a bike in your twenties <laughs> because you still fall, which I yeah. did a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but I remind, you know, I reminded myself, okay, the first time anybody rode a bike, they had never done it before. The first time I walked into my, my first meeting as a public company board member, I was quite nervous. I was probably 20 years younger than everyone else. I was certainly one of very few women in that room. And I just kept saying this to myself, everybody else had a first day too, right? And they want me to succeed and I'm just going to do my best. And the, after my first day is done, I will have done it before. So anyway, that's one little mantra there. On the community side, yeah, the, the main thing that I have seen lead to success in all the people I've met who've started movements and started successful companies is welcoming 
the first people who want to join you. So the first people who raise their hand and are excited about your idea, those are likely to be your biggest, most excellent supporters. And the more you can welcome them and give them real responsibility and delegate to them, the more successful you'll be. Uh, Another great point, because just last week, I interviewed um, a wonderful young woman named uh, Shadil Estepan, and she is the current director of Lady Gaga's Born This Way Foundation. Young woman, I think she's 29 now, she'd mentioned. But when she first started, she started as part of their inaugural youth board, like in 2012 or something, if I think of my math is correct. But it's that point that there was an organization at that level, like Lady Gaga being like one of the most successful organizations, of, you know, uh, uh, rock stars in the world, starts an organization, and she welcomed in this inaugural group of young people so that they could sort of emerge with her as she formed this organization. And now one of those young people is literally running the organization today. So it's a prime example of what you just mentioned. I love that. And actually the nonprofit that I started right out of college, which is called Breakthrough Pittsburgh, one of the girls who was a seventh grader the summer I opened it years later became a woman who was a director of the program. So I see this all the time. You know, those very first people who get involved often can take on so much. And that's actually another great point about the legacy of starting movements or building anything is that if you do it in the right way and you have the right people around you, you actually don't even need to be there. The best legacy is that the movements we start can live on without us. Without us. So yeah. that nonprofit I started. I led it for, I think, five years, and then I passed it on to someone else who could take it to the next level and do more than I could. And this summer, 2024, will be its 30th anniversary. Wow. Thousands of kids have gone to college, and it didn't take me to stay for 30 years. And so each of us can start and build things and pass them off to other passionate people and then create a big legacy in the world. You know, it's interesting when you say that because, and I never, well, I try to always avoid like political conversations on the show within reason, you know, not like serious, heavy (laughs) political conversations. But when you say that, it does remind me of sort of like the conversation around our political leaders who, um, not even from an age standpoint, but from a standpoint of sometimes socially, there's a new generation that now the world sort of is their prime playground. And certain leaders have already sort of, okay, done their thing in their time when it was relevant to their particular generation. And maybe there's some consideration of like, you know what, the movement's there. I'm going to put people in in place to lead it now forward from this perspective. And I'm going to go on to continue my leadership elsewhere, perhaps, but let someone else take on this particular topic and or, or movement. And I, I sort of feel like that's in a way a part of what you're saying there too. I really do believe that. I, I believe that our power in the world is to, the, the most power we can have is to amplify the success of others. Because there's no way that I as an individual can have maximum impact if all I ever do is my own work. If what I can do is teach and empower others to do that, that this is why change.org was so powerful, right? We, we started a platform and allowed anybody on earth to instantly create a campaign and mobilize others around the causes that mattered to them. That was way more powerful than me starting any one campaign. And so I do agree that over time, 
yeah, we start things. It's amazing to hand them off to others and then to mentor those people and teach others. And, and, you know, they sometimes call them wise elders. I think I'm getting close to the wise (laughs) elder stage of my life, but you know, that's a, that's a great stage too. And I, I do believe people at all stages of their lives can have massive impact and especially when they involve other people. Yeah. And the wise elder moniker is sort of quite honestly, can happen at any age. If you are older than a generation you're inspiring right now, I have cousins who are like in their twenties and I'm literally guiding them through uh, my wise elder phase, <laughs> you know, yeah, of, you avoiding are. the pitfalls that I've done and, you know, making it easier for them and they can learn, learn more. And it's funny, you, you pretty much answered what was, what was going to be a question that I had for you, but you pretty much answered it, which was in your book, Purposeful, which I will hold up again. Uh, you discuss how we all can be movement starters. And you've sort of already talked about those things. Just a little bit, if you could just talk a little about, is there a strategy or an insight to someone who's looking to really begin a movement? Like what would be a first step for them if it's like an actionable step? Yeah. So again, as I'll just reiterate that the three key factors are courage, community, and commitment. And the first step is often something very small. So one of the things that helps is for people to think about articulating their vision as a first step before you actually do anything and ask anyone for help or start a fundraiser or anything, you might just take a step back and say, what is it that I'm trying to achieve? And great visions all have three components. The first is an articulated future. So what will the world look like if I am successful? So as an example, when I say, when I talk about Rising Team, our vision is a world where everyone in the workforce feels deeply understood, supported, and able to reach their goals. The second part of a a great vision is purpose, which is why does this matter to you? So if the world looks a certain way, what will happen? What will be better if the world looks that way? And the third part, which most people forget, and I'd argue is maybe the most important, is a compelling story that brings that vision to life. So ideally, it's a personal story about why it matters to you, but it doesn't have to be. It could also be a story about someone else that you're seeing go through something that you want to support or something like that. So if I think about examples, here's a small example from the change.org days. There was a high school athlete named Sarah Kavanaugh, and she loved to drink Gatorade after her workouts. And then one day she was reading the ingredient list and she read something she didn't understand. And she looked it up and realized this was an ingredient that was banned in Europe and Asia and was still allowed in the U.S., And so she decided that she wanted a world where she could drink her sports drinks without feeling like she was putting her body at risk. And she started a campaign about that and was able to, as a high schooler, persuade both Pepsi and Coke to take that ingredient out of all of their soft drinks. But she started with a, what do I want and why does it matter to me? And why does it matter to other people? And what's my story about it? Yeah. Yeah. That's so great. And I think it's that, that it, you have to um you have to be paying attention first of all what i think is important to to really start a movement like you said in that case there was something that she noticed that really made her pay attention and it's, and we all have that reaction sometimes when we read labels of stuff that we're about to consume i'm like what there are too many consonants <laughs> in that word not enough vowels like what yeah. is that i'm about to eat but when you told that story it reminded me of another story about megan markle who's of course you know the married to prince harry um there's a famous 
commercial that uh, she saw, I guess, from a Holly Hobby oven or something. And she was the one who wrote to them as a little girl and said, why are there boys in this commercial or, or something along that story? And um, oddly enough, she was responsible, one of the, you know, one of the voices at that age as a little girl who got them to kind of make their their commercial a bit more universal with boys and girls yes. using the oven because boys bake too. Today, we know they're famous pastry chefs and bakers who are boys, but that took a little, even a little girl with foresight to go, wait a minute, why is it just us? Can't boys bake? And she helped them, you know, kind of move forward. And so many stories of young kids doing that too. So mm-hmm. yes, anybody at any age can do this can be a change leader. Well, you know, there's, as we're moving towards the end of our interview, I have a couple um, more saucy areas, I will call it, in your book that I love. And my most saucy favorite is <laughs> don't drink the haterade. Because, you know, there's always that faction of the public who's going to criticize and ridicule. And very often, the loudest critical voice, quite honestly, is the one that we have in our own heads. I've talked to many people. But once we can figure out to silence that one, it's the other people we have to figure out how to work. So when you say, don't drink the haterade, give me your perspective on what you mean by that. Yeah. Well, in general, you know, there's a famous Jeff Bezos quote that he says, if you don't want to be criticized, then don't do anything new or interesting because it is definitely the case that as leaders, whether it's inside corporations or building a movement, we if we do things that are big, some people will disagree. And in today's day and age, it's very easy for those people to disagree with us publicly. And, you know, to be honest, even it can get to the point where people are threatening and so forth. So I, I draw a spectrum in the book that says, you know, if people are threatening you and so forth there, you want to bring in support and help and take this very seriously. Mm -hmm. And then there is the other end of the spectrum where people are actually giving you reasonable and good, you know, constructive feedback. They disagree with an opinion you have, they're sharing their own opinion. And in that case, we should try to listen to those people because they may have valuable things to say and just shutting out all constructive criticism won't make us better. So there's sort of two far ends of the spectrum. In the middle are what I'd call the haters, the people who just leave nasty comments for no reason and so forth. And there are multiple strategies for them, but one is to ignore and a lot of people do that. And the other is to surround yourself with your allies as a reminder. So for example, You know, if you have a group of friends you can call on when people, when you're feeling extra criticized, that helps. Or sometimes people keep track of their positive comments on social media. I've seen someone print this out once and carry them around with her. Here are the positive comments. Or as an example, at Rising Team, we have a Slack channel we call the cookie jar, and we put all of our positive customer testimonials in there. So every day we get notes from our customers who say, oh my gosh, I I know my team so much better. I loved this exercise. I feel so much more connected. And we put those things in the cookie jar. And then if anybody's having a down day, they just go in the cookie jar and like, look at some great things people were saying about us and it makes them feel better. So yeah, it's like having positive news channels where there's nothing but good news. That's sort of a a latest sort of trend that we're some some brands are trying uh, to do that. But yeah, because we're inundated with all the the really, really bad stuff. And uh, 
Yeah, I agree. That's a really great thing to do. Because on social media, of course, too, it's as you point out, uh, it's like a minefield of any and every. So you really don't know what to do with it. So you have to develop your own strategy for how you're going to to cope with it. I'm trying to get better at not responding, I will just say. <laughs> I'm working on it. It's tough. <laughs> I, I struggle with yeah. that too. But yes, it's it's okay to not respond. Yeah, yeah. And I do want to just also reiterate another point you just made. And I made this point recently when it comes to conversations about race relations. I'll use it as an example. I share with someone on the podcast that very often um, I will be on Twitter and there'll be a conversation about something that happened in the black community and a non-black person, specifically a white person, will try to enter the conversation and get immediately shut down when they had no malintent. They were just trying to understand. So I said to my fellow African-Americans, I said, listen, we cannot on one hand ask people to understand us and to join us as an ally, understand our plight if we shut them down when they attempt to enter the conversation. And that is very similar to one of the strategies you mentioned, like someone can have an opinion that's not the same as yours versus shutting them down, ask them why they feel that way and try to maybe open up some dialogue. Yeah. I love that. And I really appreciate that belief that you have and that you're sharing. It, it is a tough space right now for people to know what to say and what to do and what's okay and what's not. And, you know, we've gotten to cancel culture being so extreme and, you know, I, I get this question a lot also because sometimes people want to support or even start movements about things that they care about, but are communities they're not a part of. Mm. And, you know, my suggestion is usually try to find someone else's movement to support rather than try to start something because we should, while it's good to be in there understanding, asking questions, we should also be centering the voices of the people who struggle it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, even during Pride Month, we did one here at NSLS in June and Pride Month about um, people who want to be allies to the LGBTQ community. And again, another minefield, like, well, uh, how do I do it? What's inappropriate? What's the language? But I really want to be helpful. But they didn't know how. So we had to help guide them through that. So I appreciate you also um, helping me uh, affirm that to whoever's listening and watching. Just start a movement. Um, is starting a movement is difficult. Sometimes getting involved with one that's already established and you've done the research and you really believe in what they're doing, that might be the better route to go. So, yeah. and I, I, I certainly don't have all the answers either. I think, you know, <laughs> I do my best and I'm sure I make mistakes too. Thank you so much. Words of wisdom, really inspirational conversation. There's so many great points in the book though. I mean, I just tapped on a couple, but um, I love the book because it also, uh, it's, not just for organizations, quite honestly, you know, you're using fundamental lessons of life that can happen in everyday life for us to do better uh, as people, as well as as members of organizations. So Jennifer Dulski, CEO and founder of Rising Team, a platform that helps to build engaging, successful teams. We really appreciate you being here today on Motivational Mondays. Thanks so much, Corey. Learned a lot from you too. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.